We're going to move now a little more quickly into some, some fundamental understandings. I want to talk to you about the cell. Because the cell, some people think of it as just a little sack, a little paper bag, if you like. And in the paper bag are trundled all these elements of the cell, fats and proteins, carbohydrates, and that's the cell. The cell is much more wonderful than just a bag of fluids. You see, the cell, all cells derive from a fertilized ovum. I want you to spend just a moment or two thinking about the magnificence of how we came to be. There was a cell in your mother's ovary that divided in such a way that unlike the usual division where it replicated itself, it actually halved the number of chromosomes in the nucleus. We'll be talking about this in a little more detail. And so instead of 46 chromosomes in that ovum, we now had a 23-chromosome-bearing cell called the oocyte. And the sperm, similarly, came from spermatogonia that were created in the testes of the male, and the cells also underwent this division. This division is called a meiosis, not mitosis. So you can see, I'm wondering the pointer, which has got the light? The middle one here? Yeah. So the unfertilized egg was a gamete carrying a half set. It met with the spermatozoa, also a gamete, carrying a half set, 23. And the new set, now coming together of 46 chromosomes, represents a new and unique individual's makeup. It's called the zygote. Now, this is not exactly the same half that your father acquired from his father, nor is it exactly the same half that your mother acquired from his mother, because prior to this breaking down to the 23 chromosomes, there's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, musical chairs, and, and, and they swap, and they move over, and they swap genetic material, and some chromosomes move, and then, when the division takes place, the division is not maternal and paternal. It's a random division of those chromosomes. Now, as the chromosomes divide, the male chromosome is called a Y chromosome, which is a little tiny chromosome, and the, the X chromosome is a bigger chromosome, has more genetic material on it. Depending whether this gamete or sperm here got the Y chromosome, from your father, or he got the X chromosome, which must have come from his mother. Depending on which sperm it is that meets with the maternal gamete will be whether it's a boy or whether it's a girl. So in some cultures, this is very important for men to understand because the men will blame the women when they don't produce a son. But the problem is that they're not shooting male sperms. You see, the problem is a male determinant of the gender of your offspring, not the female, because she has an X chromosome, and if the male gives her another X, it's a girl. If she gives him a Y, it's going to be a boy. So gender selection comes from that. Now, this is what we call a tip, a, a, a sort of a stylized cell. The stylized cell 
is the cell membrane. It contains the, the nucleus. It contains the nucleolus. It contains many what we call organelles. This cell is so tiny that you can't see it with the naked eye. It has to be magnified by the electron microscope 26,000 times before you'll be able to see some of the elements we're talking about here. So these are magnified 26,000 times for us to see them. And so we have all kinds of different things. We have a vesicle here, we're going to talk about this. We have endoplasmic reticulum that is rough, endoplasmic reticulum that is smooth, all right? See, smooth. And we have here, we have mitochondria. Very interesting thing about the mitochondria, we're going to talk a bit about these. Mitochondria come from the mother. Mitochondria don't come from the male. So, in other words, when they, when they looked at mitochondria, they said people seem to have all the same mitochondria. And then they did find a, a, another kind. They, so there's probably been some mitochondrial mutation. But basically, that's why they talk about Eve. Because they say the mitochondrial line goes all the way back to Eve. Now, the fertilized egg begins to divide by a process called mitosis. So it now replicates itself. It doesn't produce with a half nucleus. It produces now with 46 cells. And so when you look at an embryo, if, is, if you work in a fertility clinic, as I have worked many times, you look down the microscope at a fertilized egg, and it starts to divide. In in vitro fertilization, they would take an egg, they will fertilize it in vitro, that means in the test tube, test tube babies. It starts to divide, and it divides maybe till it's 16 cells, and then it is implanted back into the uterus of the mother. That may be a mother whose tubes were tied or whose tubes were damaged with endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease or whatever has damaged it. So the, the fertilization, instead of taking place in the tube, has taken place in the Petri dish, and now that egg is put back in. But those 16 cells that we're looking at and calling an embryo, those 16 cells, each one of them, if you separated them all apart, would of itself be able to divide and create a new baby. It would, of course, be an identical baby, because they're all from the same cell. But we could have not twins, not triplets, not quadruplets, not sextuplets, but you could, you could go on by dividing the cell in the test tube. These cells that have this capacity to create a whole person are called totipotent stem cells. Now, you may begin to understand some of the argument that arises when we talk about stem cells, when you understand that all of those cells could be totipotent stem cells. They are capable not only of just making a brain or an eye or an ear or a tongue or a liver or a kidney or transforming to gut, a heart, blood vessels, blood. They are capable of transforming into a whole person. And that is why the embryonic stem cell is so sought after by the scientists because it has this total capacity. Now, of course, as the cells divide, they do split the chromosomes. 
If you look at this, this is, this is a chromosome, pair. These chromosomes have split, see? So now, when they divide, they, they'll be, they're, they're are, sorry, there are 46 chromosomes here, but the divide down here, you see, as we come up the division here, these are preparing for the cell to undergo mitosis. They're making a mirror image of each other all the way along the chromosome. And when that cell divides, there will be an exact replication of the chromosomes that were in the cell that they came from. There's the little Y chromosome, and here's the X chromosome. This gives you an explanation as to why some diseases are called X-linked diseases. Hemophilia, the kings of Spain, the, the, the royal household of Spain, had a lot of hemophilia. Probably Queen Victoria's line also had hemophilia. In fact, those royal lines, and it was carried on the X chromosome. It was only, or not only, but nearly always seen only in the male because if the defect was here, on an, if it was a male, there was not another compensatory portion of the chromosome to compensate for the deficiency. And so the males would show what we call a sex-linked disorder, really carried, though, on the X chromosome. Now, if a woman were to have two defective X chromosomes, maybe she would get the disease, but a woman menstruates, she does all these, so those kind of women probably would not reproduce, whereas the male can reproduce because he's not, he doesn't, uh, it doesn't come a crop with it. Now, red blood cells lose their nuclei. The nucleus is a clustered mass of those chromosomes that I've just shown you. Red blood cells lose their nuclei as they mature, but most cells preserve the nucleus as they mature because it carries all the information required for every physiological function possible. And as cells become different and do uh, what we call differentiation, as a nerve cell becomes a nerve cell and a cardiac cell becomes a cardiac cell, it's because that portion of the cell's nuclear physiology is switched on that makes it into a nerve cell. And that portion of the nerve's nucleus is switched on that makes it into a heart cell. But even in the nucleus of the heart cell, there is that portion of genetic material that could have made it into a nerve cell. But as it matures, as it goes further and further down the line, those cells lose the capacity to become totipotent and go into any kind of cell, and they can only form into the sort of cell that they have been dedicated to. We then have what we call adult stem cells. This is different from the embryonic stem cell. It's important for you as pastors to understand this if you're going to engage in the debate very logically about stem cell research and so forth. Here we look at white blood cells. White blood cells have a nucleus. Here's the nucleus. The red blood cell does not have the nucleus. Why? It wants to make more space for hemoglobin, which is the carrying capacity of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And so this cell is packed full. Now the cell is also a biconcave disc which gives a wider surface for the transference of oxygen and carbon dioxide across its surface. It has been found to be the optimal surface for the transfer of oxygen across that membrane. And as we say to the pastors in this course when we're teaching it, just look at a red cell 
and know how fearfully and wonderfully you have been made. Because this cell has been designed to take oxygen to your brain, to your heart, to your gut, to your kidney. The cell has been designed. The design is so meticulous that we know there have to be a designer. Nerve cells, muscle cells, lung cells, they all got the common nucleus. But some parts are switched on and others off. So the cell differentiates according to the nuclear activity. There's the picture of that cell again. Stem cells have not yet begun the process of differentiation. So they have the capacity to differentiate. If they are embryonic stem cells, they have the capacity to develop into any kind of tissue. If they are adult stem cells found in the heart or found somewhere else, they have only the capacity to develop into the tissues of which they are the stem cells. This means, and this has been done, that somebody who has a failing heart, perhaps they've had a heart attack, and the portion of the wall has become fibrous. It now tends to flap like a useless uh, little sail in the wall of the heart. And the efficiency of the ejection fraction is poor. They have taken some of these cardiac stem cells and injected them into those failing hearts. And they found that the stem cells in the milieu of the heart can regenerate themselves and start to produce healthy stem cells to replace those cells that were lost. So stem cell therapy has a basis that is very, very intriguing to the scientists. The ethical problems come with when they're wanting to do embryonic stem cells because we say, where are you going to get those stem cells? So as a church, we have no problem with somebody doing a bone marrow tap and taking out stem cells from my bone marrow and washing them and culturing them and, and lining them up and separating them and then using those stem cells because I don't, they don't sacrifice any, any body for that. But when it comes to embryonic stem cells, they may be going to take these cells from an embryo that could have developed into a life. Therein lies the ethical dilemma. And of course, the argument is, well, these cells are going to die anyway. Because they were, people went in, they couldn't get pregnant, so they underwent in vitro fertilization. They produced eight of these eggs. We fertilized them. We found that we all eight fertilized and all looked good, but we didn't want her mother to have eight babies. So we put three in, and she had two and then we did it again, and she had another one, and now she doesn't want any more babies. But here we have these embryos in the refrigerators, keeping these babies in, on, in, on, on, on coal, on ice, all right? What are we going to do with these cells? And the mother is having to pay to keep those cells alive, you see? And so the scientists are saying, we can put those to good use. And then people are saying, that's an abortion because you are not letting those cells have their whole potential. And the argument rages about embryonic stem cell research and so forth. I'm not able to settle that issue in your mind. You have to settle that issue in your own mind. But these are ethical decisions that we as Adventists and pastors in particular need to be cognizant of. White cells differentiate themselves into all different kinds. We have here the nucleus 
is dividing in different ways or taking a different shapes, and we call the cells different because of that. There's a question. Yes, sorry. <coughs> Okay, I think I understand his question. What he's asking is, could it be possible to find specialized cells in other areas than where they're supposed to be? Is that correct? Is that your question? So in other words, yeah. could we find nerve cells in the stomach? Yeah, well of course, the, the, the question is a little bit difficult. For, for to answer because nerve cells are found normally in all of those tissues. Yeah. We find nerve cells in the gut, we find nerve cells in our skin. We, it's not just here that nerve cells. But, but to answer his question a little more clearly, I think, and get to his point, sometimes we see in young babies when they're just born a condition called neuroblastoma. This is a tumor of nerve tissues that have not migrated necessarily to, in the embryological formation to the correct sites. And so we do see failure sometimes of the, t of the cells to migrate to where they're supposed to be. The, the interesting thing, though, is that if we take stem cells, and put them into a tissue such as the heart, or into the brain, or into bone, or wherever it is, they tend to differentiate into the tissue in which place they find themselves. So there are factors, obviously, in that tissue that are nurturing the cell to become the sort of cell that it's got to be there. Yeah. Exactly. We put the bone marrow cell into the bloodstream, but it finds its way to the bone marrow. We are fearfully made. We are wonderfully made. We are only scratching the surface of understanding how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. But I'm going to have to push on because of the time limits. So stem cell differentiation when it's injected in the heart, they become heart cells. And if it's injected into the lungs, it will become a lung cell. Now, I'm not talking about the major functions. We're going to talk about that later when we get into the systems. But st cells, cells I'm talking about here as a stereotypic cell. This is the basic cell. This is the cell, oops, something's happened. Every activity of the human organism derives from the function of cells. Even my pointing my finger, even my talking, my movement, everything is coming from the function of cells in my brain that are sending messages down through the nerves to my muscles, and I am doing that, and I'm at the same time balancing. Just think about the complexity of what you are seeing happen before your very eyes. As I talk, as I move, as I balance, they say that a man can't do more than one thing at the same time. Look at me. Yeah? We, of course we can. We can all do more than one thing at the same time because we are so intricately and beautifully made. Every cell requires energy to do its function. 
and every cell requires to get rid of the metabolic products of that energy utilization. These metabolic end products are not toxins. They are the natural products of metabolism. Now, if we accumulate too many, uh, just as we can drown if we get uh, water fills the boat, of course we could be in trouble. But there are so many people in health ministries are talking about detoxifying your body. They're talking about giving you daily enemas. There's people that talk about chelating, giving you substances to bind the chemicals and wash them out of your blood. We don't need in the healthy state detoxification because God has given us such a beautiful system and sometimes for us to try to detoxify the body is like taking a great big power driving screwdriver and thinking we can fix a finely made Swiss watch. Let's be careful what we do, because God has made us beautifully and lovely in, 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 in everything. Evolutionists who suggest that life came into existence by itself are confronted with the problem of a cell. It's all very well for an evolutionist to say, well, when the temperature was just right, and the protoplasm, the proteins, and the hydrocarbons, and the whatever it was in that primal sludge of the ocean was just right, you see, then life came. Life is much more than a hydrocarbon. Life is much more than a protein. Life is much more than a strand of DNA. Life requires this complex cell. They might say, well, look at the virus particle. Even a virus particle is very complex. But they might point to a virus particle and say, these could come together and form cells. But they forget that even viruses require the nuclear apparatus to replicate themselves. So there is a problem here. Now, that's not that we couldn't believe that there can come changes through mutations. It's not to say that there couldn't be some natural selection. We've done that all the time. You look at the wheat that was found in the tombs of Pharaoh. Sure, it was wheat, but the wheat today has been naturally selected, genetically modified, if you wish, by a process of selecting the best grains, the grains that grew shorter and had more product on the... On the so over the centuries, the, the 4,000 years, we have seen a change in the natural selection, not natural selection, the the intelligent selection of those elements, and we, we have seen change. All dogs don't look like the first dogs. I mean, I had a Yorkshire Terrier, didn't look like a Great Dane, because men have selected the characteristics, but the basic apparatus for a dog was there. And if you left a hundred dogs of a hundred different breeds and let them all just breed for, you know, willy-nilly, willy-nilly, you would soon find we had what looked like a wild dog again. So, the thing is, we have to look at all of this, and I believe, and it's my personal testimony, that I cannot conceive of what we're talking about over these next few days ever taking place without the hand of the Creator determining just how it was going. If we're going to understand the basic understanding of a cell, we have to understand just a little bit of its organization. A lot of this is in your notes. But no cell exists in a vacuum. No cell can exist just by itself. An amoeba, you say, it can exist by itself. No. The amoeba can only exist in a pond. 
and a pond has to have uh, products that the plants have produced. It has to have things that the sunshine has produced. It has to have materials, chemicals in there. So a, a cell can't exist by itself. A cell has an environment. And every cell of our body lives in the environment. And the organs and the systems are so fashioned to support each other by providing the necessary, what Claude Bernard, the famous physiologist, called the milieu interior. It was the internal milieu for the cells. A cell typically has two major parts, the nucleus and the cytoplasm. The nucleus, I showed you, is enclosed with a nuclear membrane. The cytoplasm is the rest of what's included in the cell membrane. And the material inside the cytoplasm is called protoplasm. Water, electrolytes, proteins, lipids, and carbohydrates are all found in the protoplasm. Water is found to represent 75%, 70 to 75% of the cellular content of all cells except fat cells. Because in fat cells, 70 to 80% of the cell is fat. So it's only 75% of what's left that is water in the fat cell. But that's why water is so important and such an important part of our health education. Electrolytes are ions. Now, if you take sodium chloride, salt, you see a grain of salt, you drop it into the water, it will split itself into sodium atoms and chlorine atoms. And, of course, there will be some sodium chloride in there. But there will be a constant movement between splitting into sodium and into chloride. The sodium carrying a charge and the chloride carrying a charge have electrical potentials. What we need to understand is that if we took a bottle of water and divided it with a semi-permeable membrane, a semi-permeable membrane would only allow water to go through the, the thing, but not some of the uh, other elements. So if we put albumin in one side of a semi-permeable membrane, which the albumin can't go through the membrane, what it does, it exerts an osmotic pressure across that membrane and draws more water into the side. And so we would see the water levels divided by this membrane. We would see the water level rise on the side in which we had put the protein. That pressure is called the osmotic or oncotic pressure. The cell wall functions as a semi-permeable membrane in many instances. Not all, but it functions some way that way. And so the regulation of sodium chloride and calcium and bicarbonate and phosphorus and sulfate, the regulation of these is extremely important to life. We are not just a bag of sodium potassium. They are beautifully, infinitely, cleverly, magnificently regulated. There are enzymes, people have won Nobel Prizes for, for, for describing a simple tiny little mechanism, the sodium-potassium pump across the membrane. Talking about that capacity, they won the Nobel Prize for it because it was such an intricate, but it was just one tiny, tiny fleck in the complexity of the human body. But we gave them a Nobel Prize because it was so magnificent. Proteins contribute up to 10 to 20% of the cell mass. And then so do 
muscle fibers, and the globular proteins are different from the structural proteins. Now, protein is something that vegetarians always worry about. Let me tell you, vegetarians, you don't have to worry about protein. In fact, when we get somebody who has kidney failure and we're trying to restrict protein, we have the devils of a time trying to get the protein low enough, regardless of what kind of diet we put the people on. So protein is not an issue at all in the vegetarian diet. And I watched, and Tini was adding extra uh, protein. You know, she said, well, I'm putting in, uh, what was the, the, uh, Gluten, I was, she was adding gluten-rich flour to the bread. And I'm saying to myself, don't worry, Teeny, there's enough protein in there. You don't need to add the protein because it's Im almost impossible if you're eating enough calories to keep alive of, of whole foods that you can't get enough protein. So the proteins are built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt, and the body knows how to manage them and take care of them. It does this all the time. Fats. Lipids are not fats. Lipids are substances that can be dissolved in a fat solvent. Well, of course, a fat's dissolvable in a fat solvent. But it in also includes other structures. But lipids are very important because they form the cell walls. Carbohydrates form the energy. When people tell you you don't need any carbohydrates, well, you don't if you're going to just sit there and do nothing. But if you're going to have energy, you need some carbohydrates. People criticize sugar. The problem with sugar is that it's got a lot of fructose. Half of a sugar, a teaspoon of sugar, half of it's glucose and half of it's fructose. And the liver doesn't cope well with the fructose. But it's not that it's bad to have some energy. It's that it's a, a quantitative thing. You're wise to reduce the amount of sugar because carbohydrates are present in so many things. If we eat whole foods, we will usually not do, have a problem. But remember when it comes to carbohydrates that honey, sugar, maple syrup, they're all the same. Don't let somebody kid you into believing that they can add half a cup of honey any more... Uh, any, any less problematically than they can introduce half a cup of sugar. Be, or maybe a little less. Is a half a cup of honey is less than a half a cup of sugar. But, but basically, the sugar is just sugar. See? Whether, we, whether the bees made it, or the cane sugar cane made it, or the sugar beet made it, it it's sugar is a sugar. And we eat too much of it. But we need to have this rational approach to how we look at these things. Now, it's not just a bag of chemicals. I'm going to move through this. I'd like you to look at this picture here. This is a diagram of a cell wall. Here we have, in this cell wall, we have these clothes pegs. They're not really clothes pegs, but they look like clothes pegs. You see these? This is, this is called a phospholipid, all right? And the membrane of the cell is a bi... bi-layered membrane. Now these tails, they are called hydrophobic tails. People who have rabies, people who have rabies are said not to like water. They've got a phobia for water, hydrophobia. They don't like it. The tails of these phospholipid molecules don't like water. 
So that means that these molecules of phospholipid align themselves spontaneously with the hydrophilic, that's the water-loving edge, on this side and this side. And in between them, where there is less water or no water, the tails line up. So we have a self-aligning cell membrane. And this cell membrane is the barrier between the outside world and the cell. If we were to look at this membrane in another picture, we would see that embedded in the cell membrane, here the hydrophilic, hydrophobic, hydrophilic parts of the embedded in here are certain inclusions. These might be some of the integral proteins, you see, embedded in the membrane. Then we find little bits of cholesterol. It's important to have some cholesterol because cholesterol is a component of the cell wall, all right? And then we have something here which is called, diagrammatically drawn of course, an iron channel. This is where the sodium can be pumped out of the cell and the potassium is pumped into the cell by means of sodium-potassium ATPase, which is an enzyme that is pumping it. And so this cell is vitally alive in its membrane even, maintaining the cell membrane. When somebody gets sick and they're starting to die, we say, oh, their sodium is going low. It's a sick cell syndrome because the, the cell is failing to pump the sodium out of the cell. We may find their potassium is down because, be, or rises, because it's failing to pump the potassium into the cell, the sodium-potassium enzyme that regulates that. And of course, when that happens, the cell cannot function well. Why am I saying this? I'm showing this to you to show, and this is a, a diagrammatic representation of what is happening in three trillion cells within your body. Every day, every moment, that's why we say, in Him we live and move and have our being. Because this is indeed a miracle. Do you believe in miracles? I believe in miracles. I am a miracle. See? I am a miracle. And so, when we, when we believe like this, it strengthens our witness. Cell wall proteins, mainly glyco, that means sugar proteins, they are the outer layer and they're put into the membrane as I've shown you. Active transport is where energy is used to transport sugars in to, or out of the cell or other, protein, or other proteins in or out. The cell is so complex. The cell wall carbohydrates sometimes influence. They have negative charges. All I'm wanting you to understand is that this is so complex. And when we talk sometimes in health ministries without an understanding of the complexity of what we're talking about, we really, you know, are not understanding how fearfully and wonderfully made we are. And so, it's important for us, and especially as teachers, to recognize that there are all of these things. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of these. I don't have time to talk to you about them. But I will talk to you a little bit about mitochondria, just a few minutes about mitochondria. Mitochondria 
are the powerhouses of the cells. Mitochondria, I don't know if I've got a picture there next. Yeah, there's an electron photograph of a mitochondrion. Mitochondria, plural, mitochondrion, one of them. You will see here inside this are these plates. On these plates, there are lined up various enzymes, cytochrome oxidases, enzymes that will oxidate, enzymes that will permit the formation of energy to be made. Energy is made by binding phosphate molecules to a substance called adenosine. So we have an adenosine-phosphate combination, adenosine monophosphate, one phosphate, adenosine diphosphate, two phosphate, adenosine triphosphate, which is the preferred energy storage, ATP, adenosine triphosphate. The bonds between the adenosine and the phosphate are very high energy bonds. And when we break them, energy is released, and that energy can be used and translated into the use of the cell. I'm doing it right now, moving my arms. It is requiring energy from the ATP. Are you beginning to get a little bit of the wonder of how fearfully we are, how fearfully made we are? We hope you are. We hope by the time you come to this, you're going to say, my God, my God, what a wonderful creator you are that you made. And I'm only talking in the broadest generalities because they could take you and make you study about one little tiny function on one of these crystals here for maybe six years to get your PhD. So this is how fearfully and complex we are. I think it's quite easy for you to read in the cell You'll read about cilia on our, on our bronchial tree. Cilia that move and waft like that, woo, move and waft stuff. And how you smoke a cigarette and the cilia are paralyzed. Uh, you'll read about the mitochondria self-replicating. You'll read about the nucleus. We're going to tell you more about the nucleus as we go through, controlling everything. We'll talk about the code, perhaps. The, you know, this is the uh, double helix. Watson and Crick, in 1953, won the, won the Nobel Prize because they, they designed how it worked. All right? What a wonderful pattern it is of, of triplet types of coding using four uh, bases. You see, here we have the four bases, uh, thymine, adenine, guanine, and cytosine. And these are, the, these are added to a deoxyribose nucleic acid. A ribonucleic acid uses ribose, not deoxyribose. Little tiny changes cause major, major effects. So the precision has to be exact. In fact, just to give you a little example, some of you have heard about sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is caused by the substitution of isoleucine for valine on position number 146 of the hemoglobin chain. One amino acid wrong, and we've got sickle cell disease. So we are talking here about something that is so precise, so glorious, so magnificent, that I believe we have to say, Creator God, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. When we put that Hubble telescope and look into space, and sees it go, or goes on forever, we know that we can turn an electron microscope 
unto our bodies. And the wonders of the human body never cease. So we go from the tiniest to the furthest. And that is my God and yours, beyond our comprehension. Any questions? Well, I'll tell you, when I talked to them, uh, I spoke to one of the professors at your university, who's a good friend of mine. He said to me in a very patronizing way, he said, Alan, <laughs> you stay to medicine and we'll take care of theology. And, and what I really was, was trying to say to him was that in the training of a pastor, there is a great necessity for you to know more than Greek and Hebrew. Because as you get out into pastoral ministry, you're going to find that the, the, the relevance of your Greek and Hebrew, if you are a pastor as opposed to a theologian, it will gradually over time shrink, shrink, shrink. You will know a few very important key words and key phrases for, uh, for, your, for, for your theology. But you're going to find that your understanding of health, your understanding of the social sciences, your understanding of counseling, your understanding of how to cope with somebody who's having undergoing a physical violence in the home, how to cope with the addictions, how to cope with the kid who's got problems, how to talk to a parent who says her boy is masturbating and you don't know what to do about it because nobody's ever dared to mention the word because it's a dirty word. So, you see, when you come to pastoral ministry, that's when you're going to appreciate, oh, there is a big gap in our education. And we just wish that there was more room for all of these things, for counseling, for social services, for and the time constraints. The time constraints are such that they say, we can't squeeze this in, we can't produce the pastors that we would want you to be. So I would think that you're going to have to ask for this. But the problem is, if they add another year to your training, you're going to complain about that too. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, this is part of the problem of the divide between the pastors and those who would engage in health ministry. And I believe that the pastors need to be given a fundamental training and an understanding so that they can help the members because the members are very willing to do health ministry, but they often come without a background in health. And our pastors are very willing that we should do ministry, but they come without a background in health as well. And so it's left then to those who are interested, zealous, and we don't really know whether there is a standardized uh, agreement among the church as to what health actually is all about. What we're doing here is, is, is a necessity extremely small and very basic. But we're just hoping to whet your appetite as to the importance of physiology. Because Ellen White said that we should teach of all the sciences, of all the sciences that we should teach our children, it should be physiology. Now, it's getting more and more complex because we're finding more and more. But that is the fundamental science of health that we need to teach our children. And so if we can just whet your appetite in this course, that you will go back and you say, wow, I'm going to buy Physiology for Dummies because those dummy series are good books. And, and, and learn some basic stuff. It will enrich your ministry. When you make illustrations, you can use these illustrations in your ministry. 
it will en en enrich it. And when the medical people sit there and say, oh, he got that right. Yeah, good man, our pastor, he knows what he's talking about, you see. So when we can see that that, that, that takes place, I think it would be a blessing. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.